Any, any prayer requests today? Sorry, Mary. Let me start prayers and you say it because I, I'm always glad because I don't think we do that. Yeah. Let me start and you pray and then I'll pick up when you're done. You say your prayer for us. No, I have something I want to give thanks, like tell you guys about. Okay, go ahead. So, I have two children. One's 20, almost 25, one's 19. And I, it was first Saturday, and I told my 19 year old that I'm, I'm going to confession. And she goes, I'll, I'll come with you. I was like, Whoa! <laughs> How old is this one? She's 19. 19. And she just, she was like, I'm not, she wasn't quite sure. I gave her a book, and she's like, I'm sorry, I was Don't be sorry. Oh, that's awesome. God. Be, be worried. <laughs> no, no, absolutely not. Let your worries go. Let your worries go. Yeah. Yeah. We know that, I mean, Suzanne and I, I'm sure most of us do. Our son didn't do, our middle son didn't do confirmation. And we, I'd taken up a teaching job in the East Coast and we were there and um, the kids would come out for Christmas and Easter, all of them. All the kids have been pretty strong in their faith, um, but he'd never been confirmed. And he called one night and... He said he had too many questions that the church didn't answer. Just very skeptical, I mean, questioning and, and didn't, couldn't give his will without feeling he had to have an answer first. Just, there's a lot of integrity to that, but anyway, he called and said he was coming out, and the priest that we knew out there, the kids loved, he was just a really good priest, Father Stephen, he said, um, I want to make my um, confirmation. Suzanne started crying. She just, I got teary too. And she said, uh, 21, 22? 22. 22. She asked him why. He said, say it, Doc. What? If I wait till I'll get, if I wait till I get all my questions answered, I'll be confirming my mind. My own reason. Not my faith. Oh. <laughs> he reached a point of realizing that it couldn't depend just on his mind. Because it, that had been the reason for, you know, holding back before. If I wait until I confirm it, I'll just be confirming my own mind. That was a huge. We were both doing everything we can to f could to fight back tears because it was so. So I know. Don't be sorry for anything. Be, but I, I'm just very grateful. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. What's your name? Hannah. 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 Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of our life again from you and the gift of yourself, your presence to us, particularly in the Mass and the sacraments. For this Christmas season, um, each year we renew our lives in you. And we celebrate your birth. Um, Nicodemus's lines, <laughs> wonderful man. How am I going to be reborn again? Can I jump back in my mother's womb? Mm. The rebirth comes in spirit. 
Um, thank you for any renewed life that any of us knew this past Christmas, even if it's small. On the scale of things, it's, it's never small. Um, um, it only seems small when we measure things by the world. Mm, not always good. But for this Christmas season, and now for this period coming to an end, um, for the wise men and all their wisdom, not knowing what they were doing, what they would find, knowing that there would be a new king and arriving and finding a little baby um, and still having the good sense to worship you. Strengthen in us this, this Christmas spirit. Help us to carry it forward in all that we do in this new year. Um, not an easy thing to do. Help us to be glad, no matter what the difficulties are. Strengthen us to do that. We offer a special thanksgiving for Hannah and for Mary's joy. Um, let it be strengthened. Help her, that young woman, um, move forward. Help her to find doors opening for her everywhere to grow in her faith. And let Mary share in it all in ways that she may not expect. We are glad to be together again. Um, help us to give ourselves to what these poets offer us. And more importantly, to live, to live whatever we take away from these people. We offer these prayers, um, Christ our Lord, in your name. Amen. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Can you take out the Psalms? As I mentioned before, Suzanne and I have been reading through the Psalms, um, and I can't tell you how much we're enjoying them. I'm, I'm amazed. I've read the Psalms before, but not nightly, but doing it nightly is, I'm, I mean, I'm at the end of my life. I'm not a young kid anymore, and I'm just, honestly, I'm, I, I, we close the book at night, at least speaking for myself, in a spirit of astonishment. There's nothing David does, nothing that doesn't relate immediately to God. He didn't see him. He wasn't next to him physically. He didn't know Christ. This is Yahweh. Um, but there's nothing, there's nothing going on that he doesn't see in terms of, that involve God. It's pretty amazing to watch. So, um, and I, just a, a brief anecdote here, a story. <laughs> Why I'm bringing this up, I'm not, um, when, I, when I finished my doctorate here and we went back to California, um, where I had a teaching job. A few years into the teaching job, the, the woman who's the head of the department came to me and said that a group of people who had been doing an extension course at UC Berkeley, we lived on the other side of the bay in San Carlos, they had been traveling across the bay to do this extension course at UC Berkeley. And as you know, Berkeley's probably one of the intellectual centers, cultural centers, intellectual centers in America. It's an outstanding university. It's where Suzanne and I met. Um, and the, at the end of the course, they didn't want to stop. They, they, they'd all come from across the bay, so they were local, and asked me if I wanted to work with them because they wanted to continue, and she didn't want to do it. She didn't have the time, so I said, sure. And we went back to the Renaissance, and what I did, I mean, I was fresh out of graduate school. So I'd done some work in the Renaissance, and I put together a curriculum for us to work on. And what I did was go back to some of the sources that were important for the Renaissance, one of which, Plato, Aristotle, the Bible. Um, one of the men in the group was Jewish. And 
Um, I don't think I knew that early on. And I remember at some point when we were doing something in the Old Testament, I don't remember what it was, he's expressing his um, I don't know what to call it, disillusionment, puzzlement, um, that God could love certain people. And I, we must have been doing the Psalms because he knew that David, David had committed murder and adultery, and, and yet he was beloved by God. Um, and um, I, I look back on it now embarrassed because I, my reading of scripture, certainly my faith, wasn't as deep then as I hope it is now. And I just, looking back, I regret that I didn't have a better answer for him. If, if we were alive now and I were teaching that course and he'd ask me that same question. Um, very Jewish, believed in the law. Here's this guy who broke the law. Um, what kind of a God is this? You know, that, that would just pass on this. Um, you know that from your reading of the Psalms that God loved David. He says of him, he's a man after my own heart. When he, remember when, he, when he's choosing the king and he chooses Solomon, or uh, Saul, rather? God. And the, the, the God says, no, don't have a king. And the Jews say, no, we want a king. We want to be like other nations. And then they get this ridiculous king. And shortly afterwards, David is chosen. He replaces him. And God's description of him, he's a man after my own heart. I really believe God loves Saul. I believe God, Saul loved God more than anything. It's hard for me personally to read the Psalms because I read them knowing he committed murder. We've talked about this a little bit. He not only committed murder, but he premeditatively arranged things to cover his tracks. The Bible doesn't show that. If this were a modern treating it, there would the preoccupation, the focus would be his premeditation. He's planning things out. He's scheming. What an evil man. He, 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 um, what was the husband's name? Uriah. 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 He killed Uriah in order to get Bathsheba. And um, they conceive a son. They have children. You know that, that God punishes him. Everything that happens to David in the rest of his life is full of sorrows. Um, I think it's really important to hold on to that. God never stopped loving David. Never. If Father John um, Roberts were here, several years ago, when he was here as one of the priests, he gave a series of talks on the Old Testament, the book of Ruth. Over and over and over and over again, his focus was on the all-encompassing mercy of God. Again and again and again. Old Testament. This loving mercy of God. Um, and I don't think that's a typical way of reading the Old Testament, but I think it's there if you see it. I, I think it's impossible to read the Psalms and watch what happens to David and hear these Psalms without feeling. Even though he sinned, he never let the guilt of his sins keep him from absolutely loving God. He's absolutely steadfast. And in some ways, that's, that's a reflection of the steadfastness of God's mercy towards his creatures. So one of the beauties of the Psalms for me is this spirit in David that no matter what's going on, he can, he can be persecuted by his enemies. He can just have committed murder, God, and killed a man he should not have killed. 
not in battle. This was in envy and lust. He wanted this man's wife. Um, he never, never stops loving God. So that's Old Testament too. So it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful image, spirit for us to hold on to and then take it into our Christian beliefs. Okay, so this is David. I'm just going to read two Psalms quickly. We, I know, I think I've read both before, but um, good way to start the year. Psalm 127. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows, for so he giveth his beloved sleep. Lo, children are a heritage of the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. As arrows are in the hand of a mighty man, so are children of the youth. Happy is the man that hath his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but they shall speak with the enemies in the gate. No matter what goes on, if we don't build our houses with God, if we don't keep him the center of everything we do, it'll all be for vain. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Okay. I hope I get to, um, I've had a cold for a month. I went to the doctor and they actually took a chest x-ray today. Um, Suzanne's had strep. Keep your distance, eh? Okay, Dante. Very, very quickly. Um, a couple of things to pick up from where we, I feel like we're starting over again. Don't do that. Huh? Okay. No, I don't. <laughs> Bless the two of you. Um, last year when we started again in the fall, it's, it's so strange for me to pick up again because it, it, it takes a lot for me to get going. And I feel like, what has it been, two weeks? Has it been three weeks? Yeah, yeah. Shake off the dust. Um, the, I think, just a couple of reflections on key principles to Dante. One of the most important things to take away from our reading of Dante is this, and it's true of Shakespeare. Dante and Shakespeare are the, the consummate poet believers in free will and human responsibility. And I, wanna, I just want to underscore that. I, I don't think there are any writers in the literary tradition 
who, who so affirm man's free will and how responsible he is for his actions than Dante and Shakespeare. I think Homer's close to them, Virgil, but, but Dante and, and Shakespeare are writing at, at what I believe is a climactic moment in Western history because modernity begins then. The Middle Ages are passing, a Christian worldview is fading. Shakespeare knows, Dante knows it, Shakespeare knows it, he's on the cusp of a modern world. And if you read, his, if you read enough of his plays, um, you'll see how aware of that. The, the, Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire is collapsing, he's dealing with all these national states, and what he does with them to me is nothing short of amazing. Dante did the same thing at the end of the Catholic Middle Ages. I, to, to try to make that point clear, I want to set up a contrast just for a second. You know that with Darwin and Freud, um, that the notion that man has free will disappears. It's gone. Darwin believed that humans were a part of an evolutionary cycle, some kind of processes over which men had no control. Okay? There were these blind forces um, that, 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 that created a situation where those who were um, most fit would survive, the survival of the fittest. Yeah? Freud believed, this is really important, Freud, Freud believed man didn't have free will. He, did, he believed, he says that consciously, I can go to the lectures and show it, He's, he believes that man doesn't have free will, he's determined. And the things that fundamentally determine him in his mind are what he called polymorphous perverse sexual instincts. Polymorphous perverse, this, this sexual impulse at the center of man's souls that can take multiple forms. Polymorphous perverse. So at the, what's at the center of man's nature is this perversity, this sexual perversity. One of the defining images of Freud's thought is this Oedipal complex, okay, that, that what's at the heart of every man, every man, is this desire to murder his father and sleep with the mother. Oedipus Rex. <laughs> yeah. Okay, and he got it from Oedipus Rex. Now hold on to that for just a second, okay, because I'm, I'm going to argue with Freud here. Um, I've never liked him, but... He, He's formed the modern world. It's, it's, it's the product of the scientific worldview of things, that things are determined. Freud believed we didn't have free will, that everything that we did was the result of acting on animal, animal impulses in every human being. They were Oedipal in form. Oedipal, okay? That every, every child grows up in revolt against his father and um, having incestuous longings for his mother to sleep with the mom. That's at the root of every human soul. Okay? Now just stop and think. Now, by the way, I'm saying this because it's become so commonplace, nobody thinks about it anymore. That's ordinary. And I'm saying this to everybody because my own personal belief is that's so much more a part of, I'm going to say, everybody in this room than I think everybody assumes. That's our mind. I remember the, I don't want to go back to it, but, but Plato's cave, that we're in that cave, those are the enculturating influences of our day. We all grew up with them. Okay? Now stop and think about that just for a moment. That means not only does man not have free will, but there's no sin that we can explain in, um, in which we can look at in terms of each one of us having responsibility for it. Because what's at the basis of Freud's thinking is 
there's this union between a, ch a child and his parents that's the ex explanation for all of the disorders. I want to say that again. What's at root for Freud is this familial tie. Each child is so tied to his mother and father that it, what's at the basis of that tie is perverse. So an individual is not responsible for himself. Those influences are already set in, in place by a relationship. So the whole notion of human responsibility is gone. Is that clear? I can't say that strongly enough. If you go back to Shakespeare and Dante, nothing could be farther from the way they see things. Is that clear? Does anybody have a question about that? Well, it's clear, but the question is, did he write, because I'm not an expert on that, but did he write things which made sense, or were they just out in left field? Freud? Yeah. To oh, no, they're all, no, no, they're all well-argued positions. I mean, people disagree with them, and, you know, Freud and Jung parted company over matters like this. It's, I just want to put this out because it's so much a part of our culture. We don't think about it. And what's, what's at issue for me right now is it's my way of trying to underscore the changes that have taken place. Remember, one of the things that we did when we started with Milton is go back to the Reformation to look at some of the Re Reformation doctrines. And my position was, take a look at those because they're still with us. We haven't escaped them. They define our culture. If you go back to Dante and Shakespeare and then compare them with Darwin or Freud, I'm using Freud right now, because so many literary people teaching literature in universities teach through Freud. They will find Oedipal motivations in Hamlet or Lear or you know, whoever it is. That's the way they see the world. The, the point I want to underscore here is think about the implications of that. What's at issue for Freud is a familial tie. All disorders are explained by that. It's a relationship. So an individual is not responsible for himself. What's at issue is these disorders passed along through the family line. How many of us grow up today ready to blame our parents? Find that in Shakespeare. It'll never happen. Find it in Dante. It'll never happen. Because Dante believed no matter how bad things are for your parents, you're still asked to bear them and learn how to love, no matter how bad it is. We are caught in this pattern of thinking, our parents did it, we did this, blame them. How long does it take to grow out of that, if, if people grow out of it at all? So to go back to, the, to Dante and the end of the Christian Middle Ages is go, to go back to a period in which the, the picture that we had of the human being is radically different from the picture we have of him today. Is that clear? Does not tell me. Has anyone looked up Freud's own relationship with his parents, and that's the where the germination? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> See, I I wouldn't take that line anyway because. The one who raised him was not as her mother. It was a stepmother. Yeah. Evidently, oh, okay. she was a hot little number. <laughs> you stop. You stop. You stop. Well, he's saying there has to be a point of perspective that he Here, let's stop because that's out, outside I know, I know, the I know, that's I know, outside. I'm just putting it out there yeah, I know. You and you and Eve. <laughs> I hope everybody sees I mean it, it's such a difficult topic. I don't want to get into it. Yeah, what, I what I want to do is is try to clarify what's at issue here because by going back to Dante, 
we're going back to something essentially Catholic Christian that we've lost sight of in the modern world. So by going back to him, we're stepping into another world. That's all. And we'll see this again and again and again as we go through it. Dante would have believed that every person grows up with disorders from his past. This is really good if you think about it because I think most of us don't even know how much that frames our mind. That we, we almost cannot look at the world without seeing it in terms of what I've inherited from my mother or my father. And we're trapped. For those of you who've been doing this for a while, you know that when we did Eliot, going back, or, or Dante actually before, we did this. In Eliot's poems, before, after, in the Odyssey, in the Odyssey itself, there are people who, who, who will not leave the past alone. It was one of the great truths of the Odyssey. People continue to live in the past. Remember, it was one of the things we talked about. Odysseus is a man who steps into the future. So is Achilles. So is Aeneas. The one, of the, one of the things every one of those epic heroes accomplishes is, is picking up the burdens from the past but not letting them destroy them. They have to bear them and bring something new out of them. So that's been a, a problem from the beginning of our literature. I mean, it's a problem from our fall. We've inherited a fall. What are we going to do with it? Um, one of the modern critics who follows Freud is a man named Harold Bloom, very Jewish, who, who speaks about Freud's Jewishness in, in his preoccupation with this family history, this history of the parents and wanting to kill the father, wanting to kill God, the incestuousness of our relationships. That's, I mean, those are the lenses through which he sees everything. That's very modern. I mean, those are the modern terms. Those are the... I think they form more what we think than we realize. So I just want to underscore this. So to go back to Dante is to go back to a pre-modern Christian world before things changed. Dante was right at that threshold, that cusp. He's on, I, I've said this before, Dante straddles the classical Christian and modern world. He has one foot in medieval and one foot. Shakespeare does the same, but Shakespeare leans towards modernity but the two of them belong together. They're both products of a Christian worldview on the edge of modernity. So to go back to Dante is to go back to our faith um, and not see it through the filter of modern eyes. It's one way to see this, okay. Second principle is Dante believes, we've already seen this, um, the, the, one of the most important things that can happen to any of us is that we change. I'm trusting everybody knows how hard that is. Um, trying to correct our wills is like trying to bend old oaks. It's, it's hard to change. What's fundamental to this is Dante shows us that none of us can change very well if we don't see. Why would we want to change if we don't see our faults very well? We don't. So a condition for changing is our willingness to be open to seeing things, to learn. We can't change if we don't have a reason for changing. So the condition for changing is learning to see our sins. That's why Virgil comes along and says, we have to go down. Virgil's going to go down and he's going to show him all the horrors of the human soul. So one is, man, is, man has free will and he's responsible for himself. He cannot blame other people. That's a fundamental belief of the Catholic tradition. We, we have to stop our whining and blaming people and sort of grow up call it tough love, I don't know what you want. 
The second is we can't change if we don't see. It's important to see, and for that we need help. So in contrast to Milton, whose epic hero is on his own, Dante shows us that the whole journey is going to be undertaken with the help of somebody else. It's going to be Virgil and then Beatrice. Um, a third quality is, and this sets up a difference again with Milton, um, Dante shows us that, um, it, I mean, I'm just repeating what I said a minute ago, we can't move forward very well without carrying our past with us. We can't deny the past, even if it's painful. So there's a paradox in Christianity. We're supposed to move ahead, not let the past bear us down, but we can't do it very well if we don't pick it up. So everywhere in Dante's journey, we, we, we see that Dante is drawing on the past. Virg he's a pagan. Dante's shown us that there's so much that the pagan world has to offer us, and Virgil, in his mind, is the clearest representative. He sees more than other people. So he's a good teacher. He can help Dante see other things, some things other people can't. Milton's not like that. Milton was very individualistic. Um, so those are just some of the more important principles to keep in mind when we think about what Dante's doing. And remember that Dante's not only using Virgil as his guide, he's adopting all of the um, adapting and adopting all of the pagan imagery that made up the pagan world. So the, the rivers, the, 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 the sticks, the Acheron, the Phlegius, all of the rivers were rivers from the underworld in the Odyssey, the Aeneid, because those rivers were images of um, psychic boundaries. They were images of metaphors of something in the human soul. So he's, he's um, uh, taking that and uh, adopting, adapting, adapting it to new circumstances, carrying it forward. And in that he's doing what St. Augustine said we should always be doing. Um, we shouldn't go back to the past and get stuck in it. We should always take the very best things that the past has to offer and carry them forward. What Milton did, remember, was to darken it. Everything in the past was evil. Satan was an epic hero. All the gods were the prototypes of the ancient gods. So Milton took that epic past and destroyed it. It was not Christian. It was anything not Christian was inherently evil. I mean, that was a fundamental principle of the Reformation. Not so for Dante. There's a lot of inherent good in things. And one of his responsibilities as a Christian was to carry that forward and um, find the usefulness of the good of it. Um, for his own salvation. Um, the allegorical method, we've talked about that. Remember that according to Dante and St. Thomas, and, and, and both of them, by the way, are going back to Aristotle and Plato and pagan, lots of pagan thinkers, but um, according to all these thinkers, the literal meaning, what's taking place literally before us, consists of four levels of meaning, always in every, every moment of our lives. There's the literal moment, of what's literally happening in fact. We're all together right now, it's seven o'clock, whatever time is, we're snacking on our, and we're, um, we're looking at Dante. That's literally what we're doing. 
But every literal, every little event in the world had an allegorical meaning, a tropological, you know, tropological, and an anagogical. The literal meaning is just that, it's factually what's taking place before us. The allegorical meaning um, was a term to describe how every event, wait, let me put this differently. If we, were to if we were to define nature, one definition of nature is that all things are in motion. All things are in motion changing, right? A cloud is changing, a tree is changing. We're ch hopefully we're changing, hopefully we're changing. Everything in nature is undergoing change. Okay? The allegorical level simply means that, that at every moment in our life we're, we're either passing from an old way of doing things to a new way, or we're getting stuck in the past and not moving at all. But if we're growing because we're in nature, we should be changing, leaving an old way behind, entering a new way of life. That should be an ongoing activity for all of us. If, if the end of our life is to learn, I believe it is, that, that's fundamental to our nature. Aristotle said we're meant to learn. Then at every moment we should be, we should be open to learning, to changing. And we know how risky that is. It can, can, be, it can be dangerous at times. So the allegorical is an expression of things passing from the old to the new. The tropological is the moral. It has to do with what we ought to do. I'll give an example. Um, when I set off for confession tomorrow, ought my daughter to come with me? Something like that. Or, better yet, um, tomorrow when the sun comes up and I've got all these things, ought I go to confession myself? You know, we're supposed to be asking ourselves whether we're doing what we ought to do. We've been called to something, are we doing it? Um, we ask a lot of other human beings, are we asking it ourselves? Ought, ought we to do this, are we doing it? The moral level. The anagogical has to do with the highest level, the final ends. Is what I'm doing bringing me closer to Christ? Or is it moving me farther away? So you can see that every, every, every event in life, what happens at a literal, literal level, involves these other levels. We're either moving back or stuck in an old way or moving forward. And, and Dante's example, by the way, St. Thomas's example was the same. It was the Jews coming out of Egypt, passing from an old way of life towards a promise. That was their example. You can say that the allegorical level of the Commedia is Dante passing from a state of Damnation. We'll learn later that he was at a point of being damned to a new life. How important Virgil and Beatrice were to Dante because they helped him straighten out his life. So every single event in our life contains these levels of meaning. We're either leaving an old way going on, we're doing what we ought to do or we're not, or, or we're moving closer to Christ or we're not. And every single event, every single event in the Commedia has that meaning. So if, if you wanted, I mean, if you wanted to get really careful some night, you could go through every single scene in the Divine Comedy 
and look at that scene in terms of those four levels. Let me, let me just give you a couple of examples um, to, to make this more concrete. Turn to page, um, or um, Canto 8. By the way, um, I can't remember. I think we were at, at Canto 10, roughly 10 when we left. And I said we're going to do roughly eight, six to eight cantos each, each meeting. So I hope we get up to 16 today and, and then have two, I guess two more classes, something like that on the Inferno, and then we'll start the Purgatorio. So um, look at, um, remember this is when, um, this is Dante. Remember, Dante is now gone from limbo to the lustful, to the gluttonous, to the avaricious, to the sullen and wrathful. And here, as he's crossing the sticks, um, he'll encounter the sullen and the wrathful. And that will take him onto the gates of Dece. I'll, 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 I'll diagram it in a second. While he's crossing the sticks, he encounters the soul at the bottom of page 42. It's, it's Canto 8, line 36 or so. Who are you who come before your time? And I spoke back, though I come, I do not stay. But who are you? Because remember, Dante's got a body. So everywhere he goes, he's shocking people. It's, it's, there's, I mean, that's one of the great ironies of the Divine Comedy. He doesn't belong there. Um, and it's putting everybody off. Um, though I come, I do not stay. But who are you in all your ugliness? You see that I am one who weeps, he answered. And then I said to him, May you weep and wail, stuck here in this place forever, you damned soul. For filthy as you are, I recognize you. This is Argente. Remember Argente. Argente in the level of the sullen. Remember, they're all buried. Their anger is beneath the surface sullen. With that, he stretched both hands out towards the boat, but on his guard, my teacher pushed him back away, get down there with the other curs. And then he put his arms around my neck and kissed my face and said, Indignant soul, blessed is she whose womb you were conceived. Now, at an allegorical level, what do those words mean? What's going on in this scene? Because those are the words, I think most of you remember, um, Indignant soul, blessed is she in whose womb you were conceived. Where do those words come from? Hmm? Go ahead, Mark. Yeah, right. Um, and because Christ is being conceived, right? So at an allegorical level, what's going on at this moment? Remember, um, Argente is reaching up. With that, he stretched his hands towards the boat, but on his guard, my teacher pushed him back. Dante says to him, May you weep and wail stuck here in this place forever, you damned soul, for filthy as you are, I recognize you. Virgil pushes him back, says, Get away. And then he put his arms around Dante and says, Indignant soul, blessed is she in whose womb you were conceived. That's a direct allusion to... Um, Mary and Christ's birth. So allegorically, what's going on here? Well, I find it kind of 
refused to save him and said, like, your damnation is your damnation, that's, <clears throat> that's justice. And then he made that reply, which likened him to Christ, who would save. You know, like, if he made the reply first, if he said, um, blessed is she who in whom you were conceived, is that what? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got the text, Patrick, don't you? Do you have it? I have it, but I don't have it. I came rushed, and so I'm sorry. I did the best I could. Can you look on? Look. Yeah, but it, it basically, if our Argenti made the reply before, it's almost like he would have been, it would have been in hopes that, or a mistaken hope that he thought Dante was going to save him. Mm, I don't. No, no. And now, but he's not saying that. It's because uh, it, it follows. Yeah, wait. After Dante says, Injustice. Stay close to the text because I'm not sure you got the figures up. But wait, Valerie, do you what? Go ahead. No, I thought that was reversed. What? Oh, what's what's Dante's response? Typical response to the sinners up to this point. Pity. Yes. Hold on. Hold on. Hold on. What's his his response has been pity, right? Again and again. And again. In fact, in in a couple of scenes following this, we're going to see Dante doing the same thing. What's the difference between his response then and his response now? He's beginning to change. He's beginning to, I think, I think, because the words are indignant, so blessed is she in whose womb you were conceived. Allegorically, it's a serious question for me. At this moment, if a power of indignation isn't growing, because what should the response be to evil? Go away from it. Yes, indignation, anger. Dante's so far, in so many, he's been so overwhelmed by the sadness of the people that his, his first response has been pity. And I've talked about it. Pity's a really dangerous emotion. It's a natural emotion, but it's also one that can get us into trouble. Don't dwell there. <laughs> it's true. Um, but here, his response is indignation. But that is, it's a prelude to anger. He, there's a, there's a, a hint of anger here. So I think one of the things that's going allegorically is, I think, I think Bev's right, is that as we watch Dante, is he changing or not? What's he learning? This is the first time we've seen him in his response to any of the sinners show any indignation. And, and right at this moment, Virgil blesses him and says, blessed are you, the same words that were spoken to Mary about Christ coming to birth. So it, it seems to me one of the questions we're left to ask is um, learning to order our emotions to the events outside of us so that when we're faced with evil, our response to it is not determined by what other people do. It's, response to the, it, it's in response to the nature of that thing itself. Dante's looking at a damned soul and his response is not pity here. It's indignation. Yeah. In the first several books, it is pity, but being as, 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 as you read a lot of this, you kind of start to looking at how Dante views things just in his mind, and the fact that he went into hell with pity, and the fact that not understanding this is God's judgment, there should be no pity, that their time that's been judged, right? It's not up for discussion anymore. So, but he did feel that pity. And I, I thought that was interesting that at this point is when he flipped a little bit. Yeah. But, yep. but how come, I, I guess, with, with all of his other reasoning that he goes through in here, how come at the beginning, I guess, he, his reason didn't 
take him to the fact that even at the first level, these people are being judged. Mm -hmm. That there should be no people. I, I mean, I see what he has, but I don't understand why. Jeez, I, I mean, the, sorry, does anybody, did you? His eyes were closed earlier, I guess. I, my own response, Mark, is that if, if I look at myself and my own experiences with every, most of the people that I come into contact, the most natural response, I think, for most of us in seeing sorrow or suffering, and we've been talking about this forever. Wait, hold on. Um, remember the image of Plato in the chariots? The, um, the, the, the difficulty every human soul has when we're in the presence of something, the two horses, that the natural inclination of one horse is to move towards it, the other one, for something better. But how easy is it for reason to get a hold of pity when pity is a natural response for most of us for the sorrows in the world? The, at, the, at the root of every tragedy, remember the two tragic emotions, pity and fear. Mm -hmm. And those are the emotions that are um, cleansed, purged. Um, and we know from reading the plays what it takes to, to get that. That's not easy. I, mean, the the, I think the natural movement of the human art is, is to sympathize with somebody when they're going through difficulties. Or, <coughs> I'm not saying it's not justified. Here, let me but, answer but, this. But, but it was just curious the way he would his logic yeah. in other portions that it didn't attribute. Because I think, he's showing, I think he's showing emotionally what all of us have to deal with and do deal with every day. That all of us tend to sympathize with things whether we should or not. And the fact that reason tells us not to is never sufficient. What we're watching happen with Dante is he's learning to order his emotions over time. Okay. And we're going to see a, a very different Dante at the end of the Inferno and at the end of the Paradiso. And just to, to, to back up your point, in a couple of cantos, Dante's going to be overwhelmed with pity. I mean, he's going to almost be overcome with it again. How easy is it to change the emotions that we know we should change? Not easy. Go back again. I want to give another example before we go on. I have one question. Sure, yeah. So he says, you know, as you are, I recognize you. Does that make a difference? Like you recognize? Make a difference how, Mary? May you, may you leave and well, step here in this place forever, you damn soul, or filthy as you are, I recognize you. Yeah. Does the fact that you recognize him? I, he's, he, I think he recognized Chiaco before he, he I don't know because sometimes you have less pity for people you know right <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah. Right, right, right. anyway I didn't know if that made any difference yeah <laughs> go back a minute um, take a look on um Page 44 and 5. Just as, remember, just as Dante, just as Dante approaches hell gates, remember, all the angels, swarm, demons are swarming around him. In page 44, um, this is Canto 8, about line 80 or so. The demons say, get out, here is the entrance. I saw more than a thousand fiendish angels perching above the gates in rage, screaming, who is the one approaching who without death? Dares walk into the kingdom of the dead. This is the dead kingdom. I'm gonna, I'm, we're going to do some Eliot in the next few weeks and, because Eliot's a modern poet and every, almost everything Eliot does is from Dante. But 
Who is the one approaching? Who, um, who without death dares walk into the kingdom of the dead? And my wise teacher made some kind of signal. He would go to them. Um, they managed to suppress their great resentment enough to say, "You come, but he, you come, but he, but he must go." Who thought to walk so boldly through this realm? Virgil tells him to stay there, um, and he goes off to talk with the demons. Um, and he says, "Have a quiet heart. Everything's okay. It's all been arranged. Don't be afraid." Um, Oh, my dear guide, who more than seven times restored my confidence and rescued me from many dangers that blocked my going on. Don't leave me, please, I cried in my distress. And if the journey onward is denied us, let's turn our foots to the back together quick. <laughs> he wants to get out of there, I mean, naturally. I mean, just for a moment, if you were, if you were in hell and had a chance to get out and were looking at a thousand demons, what would be your response? Get out. You're going the wrong way. Yeah, right. <laughs> Remember, deep... These are not humans. These are far more terrifying than humans. Then that Lord who had brought me all this way said, do not fear the journey we're making. None can prevent. Such power did decree it. He goes and he talks with him and he comes back. A few lines down. Our adversaries slammed the heavy gates in my Lord's face and he stood there outside then turned towards me and walked back very slowly with eyes downcast, all self-assuring, all self-assurance now erased from his forehead, sign, who are these to forbid my entrance to the halls of grief? He spoke to me, you need not be disturbed by my vexation, for I shall win the contest no matter how they plot to keep us out. This insolence of theirs is nothing new. They used it once at a less secret gate, which is and will be forever locked. You saw the deadly words inscribed above it, and now already passed it and descending across the circles down the slope alone, comes one by whom the city will be opened. Um, going over, Canon 9. The color of the coward on my face when I realized my guide was turning back made him quickly change the color of his own. He stood alert like one who strains to hear his eyes could not see far enough ahead to cut the heavy fog of that black air. But surely we were meant to win this fight, he said, or else, but no such help was promised. Stop for a moment. Allegorically, what's going on? at a level of allegory. Is everybody clear what's going on? Virgil said with real confidence, don't worry, stay here. He goes to talk to the demons. He comes back. His head is downcast. He looks discouraged. Sorry? I was going to say he's not as overconfident as he was. Allegorically. Allegorically. What it, so he says, but surely, but surely we were meant to win this fight, he said, or else but no such help was promised. Oh, how much time... It's to, but, but surely we were meant to win this fight, he said. Compare Virgil now with Virgil a few minutes earlier. Allegorically, what's going on? It's moving from confidence to uh, whatever. Fear? Fear? I don't know, fear, but whatever the opposite of confidence is. I don't Sorry? Uncertainty. Hey, yeah. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so, how, here, let me put it, how adequate is reason? when reason's dealing with supernatural terrors? Not so much. Is everybody clear here? Virgil's a man of reason. He's not a man of faith. And reason is adequate for a lot of things. He's, he, you can see how confident he's, he's a, he is. He, Dante calls him, my father, my father, my father. And here at this moment, he says, don't leave me here, let's go back. Virgil says, no, 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 wait, don't be afraid. 
he goes and comes back and suddenly Virgil can't catch his words. I think allegorically what Dante's showing us is um, the strength of reason, how important it is, and also its limits. That when he has to deal with demonic things, reasons not as capable. And in a minute, we'll see the angel come. Remember, the angel comes and the, and the demons scatter. Because the, the, the angel is from heaven. It's an angelic agent itself. Okay? So in this journey that Dante's taking, we're watching Virgil, a, a man fully capable in terms of the world. He has so much to teach Dante. But with respect to supernatural terrors, demonic things, we, we see that there are certainly, and by the way, we're going to see this again and again in a number of places. It's going to happen again. We're going to see Dante critiquing. He's showing how strong reason is, and at the same time, very often showing that by itself it's not enough. Sort of a false bravado. It's just, I, it's, I mean, you could put it, it's a false bravado in the sense that It's a false revival in the sense that somebody who doesn't know faith wouldn't know better. I don't think, I don't think of virtue as a man filled with bravado. He's, he's a virtuous, he's a good man. I, I, you know, I know men who exhibit bravado. Virgil's not that kind of man. But he's not a Christian. He, he, do, he has no experience with faith. He doesn't know what it is. And this to me is just an early example of Dante showing that Reason is so capable of doing so much, but at some point it's not enough, it's inadequate. Those are just, remember that, that all along we've got this allegorical method that Dante's using, and he's aware of it, so that in our reading we could take almost any scene and, and look at it according to these levels and, and see more in it. We don't have the time to do that, but... Okay, we also talked about hell. Um, Remember, um, hell is from the Anglo-Saxon helon or behelion, which means to hide or conceal. It's a darkness or cave. And um, it's also associated with the word calypso. I love that. You remember. I mean, those of you who have been here for a while. Because you remember calypso from the Odyssey. Remember, she was the, the goddess on the island that, that um, kept Odysseus for eight years. And if you remember the difference, it's, it's really important. Circe had Dante for, I mean, Odysseus for a year. She's an image of that in woman which can gain possession of a man because of her sexual attraction. Circe. She was, Dante was with Circe for a year. Dante's under Calypso's power for eight years. That's how much dramatically more powerful she is. And I think she's an image of, of that power in woman that can take possession of a man because of her spiritual beauty. She's much closer to something divine. This beauty that women have and its its attraction um, for men. Susanna and I have been watching this English detective story, and there's this one woman who's called in to help with the problems, and and one of her colleagues says to her, because he's attracted to her, he says, "You have no idea 
you, you have no idea how attractive you are to the men around here. It's hard to believe that that would be true, but um, but I think there's some truth that 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 particularly for beautiful women. I mean, that that there is an extraordinary power that they have in their in their attraction, the, the attraction that men feel for them. And Circe was that image, and remember, she she had Calypso. She had um, Odysseus for eight years, and so Calypso means in the dark obscure. Apocalypse, from which we get the book of Revelation, means to come out of the dark, to be brought into the light. So hell is this place of darkness where humans exist because they've chosen to separate themselves from God. We'll see this more and more clearly. I I just want to underscore that. I know a teacher, a colleague at UD, who, who takes the position that (laughs) <laughs> people can leave hell anytime they want. I, I just I, I couldn't be farther from the truth. People are in hell because they've chosen to be there. These are final ends. What happens here in Purgatory and, and uh, Paradiso show men moving towards their final ends. Hell and Paradise are final ends. The people here are here because that's what they've chosen. That's what, they, that, that's what they've wanted. What we see in hell is man... Wanting justice, this is so crucial. Wanting justice and getting it. There's no other way to say it. When we get to purgatory, you're going to see everybody in purgatory wants justice and mercy. Here, what they have is what they wanted. This is what's owed, this is what they wanted, they've got what they wanted. Um, um, remember that the that the Hell is divided into three levels, and these correspond to the, remember the three beasts? When Dante went up the, um, um, the first level um, that we're past now is the level of incontinence. It's the leopard. The level we're entering now is the level of violence. It's the lion. And the last, um, which we'll get to next time, is the level of fraud, which is the shield. That's what we ended up last. And remember, I think this is so important. All of this comes from Aristotle and Cicero. Aristotle held that bad behavior could be divided down into three kinds. Incontinence, bestiality, and malice. Now, that's really important. That's Aristotle. All bad behavior can be classified in um, in three categories: incontinence, bestiality, malice. Cicero said there were only two kinds of bad behavior: violence and fraud. What Dante did was combine them. So we get incontinence, the levels that we've just passed. We're moving into the level of the violent, and we'll get to the front uh, later. The important thing to underscore here is this, and, and it's the reason for the gates. Why does Dante, this is an important question here. There's, remember, when Dante crosses the, the river Styx here, he comes to this tower, and the Medusa's on it, remember, in her terrifying way. 
Why does Dante put um, the city of Dees, the city of Dees, the city of hell, of Satan, here instead of at the very beginning? Because we entered hell, um, what is it, six cantos? This is canto eight, nine. Limbo, lustful, gluttony, avarice, wrath. So we entered hell five levels earlier, right? Why didn't he put the, 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 the city of Dees on the outskirts so that when we entered it, we entered into hell? Allegorically, why does he place the city walls here? Is everybody clear? Why did he do that? What's the, what's the defining difference between this city and these sins. Those are premeditated. Isn't that what we did last time? Sorry. Premeditated. That's, that's what we did. These? No, fraud. That's, fraud. that's what we did. But that's even lower than violence. He's yeah. put the city here. Right. Between incontinence and violence. So there's certain amounts of hell above that's not as bad as it's once below. Right. So it's like a dividing line. Right. And why is that dividing line there? <laughs> Maybe he had to go through these stages to understand where hell really was. Maybe if he saw it at the beginning, he wouldn't think it was that. Well, what's the difference between incontinence and the rest of the sins? What's incontinence? When a baby wets the bed. Yeah, so can't hold it. Can't hold it. No. Yeah. What, what we're watching, this is... Dante, so what he teaches, God, what we, the modern world so needs this. What he's showing us are levels of sin, but what he's showing us, it, this is so crucial, what he's showing us is the descent into sin, the way in which the human soul, I'm saying this for all of us, the way in which the human soul enters sin. Remember, when he, when he begins, when he crosses the Acheron, he's unconscious. And he crosses a number, he crossed a boundary here at Styx. The, the level of wrath before he gets to the city, the city limits. He has to cross another river. Both of those rivers are threshold marks. The first one was into hell itself, and he was unconscious. The second one is in the wrathful, and he's moving from um, sins of weakness to sins that involve a deliberate act of the will to hurt. So what we're watching is the way in which the will... I'm, I'm, I hope I'm speaking for everybody here, but I know certainly for myself. Um, what we're watching is the way in which the will, when it, when it begins sin, enters into it innocently, unconsciously, and in weakness. But that as the inclination for sin grows, the will becomes more deliberate in what it wants, even at the expense of other people. So allegorically, we're watching the nature of sin, the very nature of sin itself. And we're, we're going to finally we're going to finally end up at, at the center with fraud and, and premeditation and all the things that reason does to... So is, so is that dividing line meaning that that's what purgatory is, that you could get out of those? No, purgatory is the next book. Yeah, well, I'm just wondering. No, they're all here. They're here. They're here. Oh, okay. I'm, here, I'm just the, wondering the steps of hell. Hmm. There's... No, because... Because through, well, okay, from our faith, through confession, it doesn't matter how far down you go, if you confess your sins and ask for forgiveness, you'll make it to heaven. Uh, you're in hell, you're in hell. But we recognize the difference between um, mortal sins and venial sins. Yes. Right, but they're different levels of 
heaven just as he's defined the different levels. Right, right. But they're all in hell, and all the people in right, heaven all, are, in yeah. Hell. Here, but I, to pick up, I thought, Valerie, hold on, let me see if this answers. The, the next point that I wanted to make is this, this shows, it marks a difference in the nature of what the will is doing. That it moves from a weak, what we understand as a weakness, that's, that we give in to something out of a weakness in it, and turning the will deliberately to something. And remember, the, the, this is interesting. He calls this the level of heresy, the heretic. That's the this is the city boundary right here, not here. Why? Why does Dante put the city of here and calls it the level of heresy? Because heresy means to think other than. Yeah, it's, and by the way, you can, I mean, we, I think Catholics would be heretics in the context of the modern progressive democratic, you know, the, the uh, politically correct regime. We would be heretics. But according to a Catholic, a heretic is somebody who holds a wrong belief about Christ. I think Dante defines, puts, gives that, that tag here because he's showing what's involved is a difference between a, a, a sin of weakness and a sin that's beginning to obdurately turn away from the truth. So the will becomes more fixed. It's turning away from something actively. They're all in hell. This is all hell. But, he, but to go back to my very first point, Dante and Shakespeare are the consummate poets of free will. He's showing us that humans are responsible for everything, even their weaknesses. But there's a difference in the implications between them, between somebody who does something out of weakness and somebody who does it actively. Um, particularly when it involves your mind and using your mind. Let's say, I mean, I'm going <clears> to... <throat> how many of us commit sins and then make excuses for them and get into quarrels with our friends or our spouses or it's because rather than just acknowledging something we want to make some excuses. That is, we begin to actively use our minds to make something um, that was not good better than it was. So what happens here at this level of heresy it involves an element of the mind. That the will, the will now is determined in its course and the end of that will be violence. Um, Dante believe that there's a different treatment in hell for those different steps? Which steps? The earlier steps, like the weakness steps. The lust and gluttony? Yeah, the ones that, well, the first step or two. Yeah. Will somebody get less punishment? Well, you saw it. We, we talk, I'm going to go there right now, actually. But remember, we saw every sin has its own nature. So every sin has its own consequence that's appropriate to it. It's contrapasso. So, there, I mean, obviously, if you're taking it the way, the deeper you go, the more intense the punishments because the sins are... Greater. Right. So, or, or I mean, let's, let's make this even clearer. At the level of the virtuous pagans, there's no punishment. They live in this dim light without hope. They're just there. But as soon as you get into the level of lustful, the very first act, level involving an actual sin, 
Um, they're, they're tossed about by winds. What we're going to see here in the level of violence and people in boiling blood, dismembered, cut up, and as we get deeper into hell, it's going to get far, far worse. So, so it does get worse for, I mean, for exactly the reason you gave. I want to look at Fernada just quickly because it's where we left off last time, and then I'd, I'd like to look at the, at the level of the violence. Does, everybody, does, he, does anybody have any questions about the division of hell between the incontinence, the violent, and the fraudulent? Remember, the, the pagans saw this, Aristotle. Incontinence, bestiality, malice. Malice implies a wanting to hurt. Bestiality, violent, the lion. I mean, you can be acting in rage without being premeditated. You know, you can get angry at somebody and knock their head off. That's bestial. That's very different from malice. Malice involves the, the intellect in a, in a sinister kind of way. And Cicero said two kinds, violence and fraud. I think Aristotle's closer to the truth, and that's why we've got three levels here. Take a look at Fernanda. Um Mm -mm, sorry. My goodness, where, why am I not? Can somebody help me here? What's going on? Is it the level of the heretics? Uh, why am I not? Here on Canto 10. Remember, Fernanda is an Epicurean, and he was uh, a Ghibelline. And he belonged to that class of people that um, defeated Dante and, and chased the whites out of Florence. Um, on page 53, Canto 10, about line 51 or so, um, he's talking to Fernanda about, I mean, they're there's rivalry and there's this, um, there's this bitter rivalry between the two because they belong to different parties. They were expelled but only, returned from, but only to return from everywhere, I said, not once but twice, and aren't your men, however, never mastered. So there's the sense of one-upsmanship between the two men. Just then among that same tomb's open ledge, a shade appeared, but just down to his chin. That's Calvacante down below, if it be great genius that carries you along through this blind jail, where is my son? Why is he not here? Because um, Cavacante heard Dante speaking with Fernanda and used the past tense about his son, and he wants to know where he is. Um, the place of pain assigned him, and what he asked already had revealed his name to me and made my pointed answer possible. He sprang to his full height and cried, What did you say he held? Is he not living? The day sweet light no longer strikes his eyes. When he heard the silence of my delay responding to his question, he collapsed into his tomb not to be seen again. 
Now Dante asked this question that's been puzzling him um, because he's seen that these men can see into the future, but they can't see the present moment. Um, at the top of page 55, if I've heard correctly, all of you can see ahead to what the future holds, but your knowledge of the present is not clear. Down here we see like those with faulty vision who only see, he said, what's at a distance. This much the sovereign Lord grants us here. When events are close to us or when they happen, our mind is blank, and were it not for others, we would know nothing of your living state. So that's partly their punishment, part of their punishment. Then I moved by regret for what I'd done, said, now will you please tell the fallen one his son is still on earth among the living? And if when he's asked silence was my answer, tell him. While he was speaking, all my thoughts were struggling with the point that you um, saw for me. Here's my question. These are the Epicureans. They're heretics. Okay. You all know it, the Epicureans. The Epicureans were the, the people who said, eat, drink, and be happy now. Eat, drink, and be happy now because there will be no tomorrow. That is, they didn't believe in the in immortality of the soul. The only pleasure in life you're going to have is now. So have all the pleasure you want because there is no tomorrow. There's no immortality. There's no immortal soul. So. Um, why is this contrapasso appropriate for them? Because they can't see the now. Hmm? Because they can't see the now. I know. Explain that, Mark. What is so that? they lived for the now, and they didn't think about basically anything else, and now that's the one thing they can't see. Yeah. yeah. So for eternity, when, and when the resurrection comes of the bodies, and they're all, that, will be their, that will be their state. The one thing that they denied is what they'll have. That, that's what they wanted. Here it is again. That's what they wanted. This is, to me, one of the most frightening things about hell. It, and there's a figure we're going to see shortly that makes me shiver. That's what they wanted. That's what they've got. Okay, let's turn to the pilot. They come to the level of the violent. Um, and there are three circles. I'm only going to look at a couple here and then we'll stop. Next week I want to pick up here in this same level and we'll, we'll move forward. Um, I think fairly rapidly through fraud. I mean, there's a lot going on there. But there are three levels here in the level of fraud. I mean, the level of violence. It's violence against one's neighbor. Violence against oneself. And violence against God. And each one has a different contrapasso. Okay. What's the last one? God, violence against God. Oh, God. Next week, um, um, you might give this some thought next week. This is where I want to start next week. When we pick up next week, I'm going to actually look at every one of the guardians, each one of the guardians of the, like the Minotaur and Pluto and Minos and all of those, um, because of what they image of the soul. But I, looking ahead to that, I want to just I want to make a statement about that because I don't want to lose it here. Um, you know that we've talked about the importance of the contrapasso. 
that the contrapasso is Dante's way of showing that man has a nature and that his sins violate that nature. That's what a sin is. You're doing, we're doing something against our nature. And that each sin has a particularly different effect. Um, lust has a different effect from gluttony or avarice or anger or violence, whatever it is. What, we, what we're seeing at each level is the way in which the human soul inside gets disfigured in a particular way according to our actions. And I, I hope that's as obvious and self-evident to everybody as I think it should be. When we go to a doctor, a doctor looks at our symptoms and will say, you've got this. Because he's showing a direct correlation between an effect and its cause. You've got this, take this. Got a broken bone, fix the bone. Got a fever, do, you know. He can only do that because he has a good, hopefully, he has a good understanding of our nature enough to know how it's gone wrong and what to do with it. Right? So we're watching, yes, is that, I mean, I hope that's, okay. Um, what we're watching is in hell is the way in which sin disfigures the human person in particular ways. And I don't want to lose sight of that because it's grotesque, because exactly in the same way when we get to purgatory and heaven, we're going to, say the human, we're going to see the human nature transform the same way by blessedness. That each person is going to take on a quality in accord with his lights. So over and over and over, Dante is just showing what an extraordinary grasp of our human nature he has. That's why he can make the distinctions he does. For Think about Milton. Did Milton ever make any distinctions like that? No, because for Milton, everything's depraved. Man's nature is fallen. It's not worth considering. The only thing that can help him is grace. The Catholic response is not so. We have a nature. It's important. If, if there's any hope for us to change, we have to learn to see ourselves. When we see ourselves, we can do things to correct ourselves, to get help. And we know from the committee, at least as Dante, is that we can't do this on our own. We don't have it in us. We can't. We need, we need other eyes. We need other hearts. Other... So remember, the contrapasso here is not just a technical you know, flourish. It's, it's, it is an exact description um, that, that shows a correlation between a person's actions and the effect that it has on him, what it does to him. The reason for going to confession is because we want to, we want to wash those away. The reason we keep going back is because we sin again. <laughs> um, and we hope, we hope in time, that's our hope, that we'll get better. And remember, hope is a supernatural virtue. We hope when we have no reason for hoping. That's what it means. So when, when our sins get worse, David, murderer, adulteress. When the sins get worse, it's not a time for despair. It's a time for hoping. That, I, that's, that, by the way, another defining image of hell. I love that. I should have taken more time. I think I mentioned this last time. The only time, there's a couple of times that Virgil actually physically gr grabs Dante. One of them is there at the gates of hell. When Medusa appears on the, on the ramparts, Dante picks him up and turns him around. If, da if Virgil had not been there as a friend to help Dante turn, what would have happened to Dante? When you look at the Medusa, what happens? 
stone. You turn to stone. What does that mean? You have no soul. No heart. The book ends. Sorry? The book ends. The book ends? Yeah. <laughs> Everything ends. Turning to stone means l looking at evil can be so overpowering that it freezes us. I'm, I'm trusting everybody knows that. Go watch an accident on the freeway and watch cars drive by. But sometimes we can get so fascinated with evil that we look at it, but the effect of it, because it is so bad, can be arresting. Dante's showing it. it, it Virgil picks him up. There's no, you don't fool around with evil. You do not tempt evil. To look, to, wait, let me put it differently. To look on evil is to tempt Satan. How is that? You don't want to tempt him. I mean, stop. I mean, bravado? The person who's got enough bravado to say, oh, I, I'll be fine with that? That's not what Dante's saying. You want to look on Satan? God, it terrifies me the thought of it. Virgil's saying, do not, do not fool. He physically picks him up, turns him around. If Dante had not had that help, what would have happened? When you look at evil, you all, I think we all know that it can be overpowering. We get, we, we get, we get so discouraged. Um, and I think men are more susceptible to it than, I don't know, maybe not. Discouraged. All of our courage goes. Discouraged. Our courage fades. So every one of these contrapassos tells there's a spiritual journey going on. Dante's learning to see the world as it is, and he's learning to order his soul, his mind, his heart, what he should feel, what he shouldn't feel. Okay, um, I'm going to skip the, the, um, the, the violence against the neighbors. They're all... Um, They're all submerged in hot blood from the passions of killing another person. I want to look at Canto 13 for a second because it's Dante and Virgil, they just passed by the boiling blood where all these souls are immersed in this boiling blood, right? I mean, they've taken lives, passionate, hot blood, and that's what they have. That's what they wanted, that's what they got. They're walking and suddenly Dante hears talk and he looks around and he can't see anything. All he sees is bushes. Right? Virgil tells Dante to break off one of the bushes. Those of you who did the Aeneid would remember this. Remember in the Aeneid when Aeneas sets off when he first leaves Troy? They go to the island right off Troy and he builds an altar and, and it's the um, bleeding bush scene. It's one of those famous scenes in Virgil's Aeneid. This bush starts talking to um, Aeneas and he says, don't build your altar here. You're, because remember, they have to find a home. They're, they're, they start. This is this long journey when Aeneas is going to try again and again and again and again to found Rome. And he keeps failing. Something gets in the way. In his very first attempt, he sets up an altar. And then this bush starts speaking. And blood comes out of it. It's the bleeding bush. And the bush says, do not build your home here. Because this is a place of treachery. There was a betrayal that took place there. It's, it's unsacred. Um, they have to go on. So Virgil's playing with that here, and he says, um, think, um, on page 68, hold that in mind. 
Wide-winged they are, with human necks and faces, their feet are clawed, their bellies fat and feathered, perched in the tees, they shriek, their, these harpies are flying around in these bushes. Before we go on farther, my guide began, remember you are in the second round and shall be till we reach the dreadful sand. Now look around you carefully and see with your own eyes what I will not describe, for if I did you wouldn't believe my words. Around me walls of grief were echoing, wails of grief, and I saw no one there to make these sounds. Bewildered by this, I had to stop. I think perhaps he thought I might be thinking that all the voices coming from those stumps belong to people hiding there from us. So my teacher said, if you break off a little branch of any of these plants, what you're thinking now will break off too. And slowly raising up my hand a bit, I stopped, snapped a tiny branch, and then suddenly the trunk cries, why are you tearing me? And when its blood turned dark around the wound, it started saying more. Why do you rip me? Have you no sense of pity, whatever? Men, men were we once, now we are changed to scrub. But even if we'd been souls of serpents, your hand should have shown more pity than it did. I mean, watch the way Virgil's working, or Dante's with pity here. Like a green log burning at one end and only sputtering at the under, oozing sap and hissing with the air, it forces out. Can you get better than that as a poet? So from that splintered trunk, a mixture poured of words and blood. I let the branch I held fall from my hand and stood there stiff with fear. O wounded soul, my sage replied to him, if he had only let himself believe what he had read in my verses I once wrote, he never would have raised his hand against you. But the truth itself was so incredible, I urged him on to do the thing that grieves me. If Dante had taken seriously what he read in Virgil, that is, if we would take more seriously poetry than we do, we might see more. Um, now, Dante asks what's going on, and Pierre Delvania tells him um, about line 60. I'm the one who held both of the keys that fitted, this is Frederick II, Frederick's heart. I turned them, that is, he was the emperor. So he was the, the emperor who stood on the side of the state in the conflict between church and state. He wanted to get control. He wanted to um, conquer Italy, thinking that if he could conquer Rome, he would get control of North and South and all of Europe. Um, I turned them both locking and unlocking with such finesse that I let few into his confidence. So he was the one who held the keys, the confidence of Frederick. I was so faithful to my glorious office, I lost not only sleep, but life itself. That courtesan who constantly surveyed Caesar's household with her adulterous eyes, mankind's undoing the special vice of courts, inflamed the hearts of everyone against me, and these inflamed, inflamed in turn, Augustus, Frederick, and my happy honors turned to sad laments. That is, he had this extraordinary job. Think about being, let's say, the vice president to a major... Con and, and suddenly people turn on you and speak and you get fired, you lose your job. Here, here's this critique again of the commercial regime. He had all this power of state. Somebody betrayed him, he loses it, what's his answer? When, he, when the one thing that he lived for, gave everything for, he's lost, takes his life, commits suicide. My mind moved by scornful satisfaction, believing death would free me from all scorn, made me unjust to me who was all just. Not quite so much. By these strange roots of my own tree, I swear to you that never once did I break faith with my Lord who was so... 
I was so good. I was so good. I hope everybody's seeing the irony here. That he's got just what, again, he got just what he wanted. He, that is, he, he, he wanted this power so much that he had nothing to live for once he lost it. And now he's got it here. Be, and, and he's feeling sorry for himself because he's saying, see all the good that I did? And nobody recognized it. If one of you should go back to the world, restore the memory of me who here remain cut down by the flow that envy gave. Why don't you keep on questioning, I said, and ask him for my part what I would ask, for I cannot. Such pity chokes my heart. What's Dante's response? He's over, overwhelmed by pity again. Um, Virgil gives him a great truth here. And what, he's, what he will say is, a, is something he got from Aristotle too. At the end times, when the body's returned to itself, every pleasure will be intensified by the perfection it receives. Every torment will be intensified according to its degree. So whatever suffering Pierre knows now or any of the sinners in hell, whatever, they know, whatever suffering they're undergoing will increase in the last days. <coughs> when the bodies return. <coughs> what did he reject in life? His body. That's what he lost. It turns into shrub and other stuff. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> so. Hold on. Sorry. What we're learning at every stage is the nature of sin. And Dante's giving us a real image of what it actually looks like. He's showing us spiritually in the soul and giving us it. He's giving us a visible image of what's invisible, the spiritual nature of things, each according to its own kind, whatever the sin is. And we're learning that the sins increase in intensity and in punishment. And we also know that in the final days when the body is resurrected, that whatever suffering they're undergoing will become perfect. It will be greatly intensified, just as every blessing in heaven will be intensified as well. Okay. The guardian of this cell, of this, um, the, the, we're going to stop here. I just want to make a couple summary comments. The guardian of the violent is Minotaur. The Minotaur. Do you guys know who he is? This is really interesting. Um, the Minotaur, like so many of the garden guardians, is an image of the nature of the sin. The Minotaur is particularly because he has the face of a bull. Bull and the body of a man. He's, here, listen, because this is, he's the product of an incestuous union between um, Minos' wife, Pasiphae, I think was her name, who, who, who was so enamored by the masculine power of a bull that she became enchanted with it and, um, and wanted to have sex with it, basically. She puts herself in an effigy as a cow so that they can mate. The offspring of that mating is the Minotaur. Now hold on to this just for a second. You can say laughable, except I think we know that people actually do things like that. 
what we're seeing is the, the kind of monstrous thing that's created out of a sexual perversion that, that is that great. Humans have a nature, we have a nature, she wanted to have sex with a bull. The offspring, even, even if it's metaphoric, the result of that is this beast. And he's the appropriate garden for all this bestial stuff because remember, in the three levels, the, or going down, the top level is the incontinent, the middle level is the level of, we can call it bestiality or violence. It's the level of the lion, the beast. When we get down below, we're going to encounter the sins of the she-wolf fraud. But here we're getting all of those actions that show how capable man is of becoming something monstrous himself by committing violent acts against others. And the guardian of this level is the minotaur. I have a closing question, and then I'll close, because I, I, as, as I was thinking about this today, I just struck. Um, let me read it. Just up until this point, Virgil, I'm going to speak as if we're all Dante's, that Virgil's taking us through it. I mean, I feel like he's taking me every time I do this. He's taking all of us into hell. He's showing us the sins. If we started out like Dante, wanting to climb that mountain, wanting to become one with that light. Remember, he goes up the mountain, and he's chased back by these three beasts. Virgil says, you have to go down first. You have to learn to see yourself before you can change. Um, he takes him down. We have been encountering the, the, the motion of the will as it descends more and more deeply into sin. Allegorically, that's what we're watching. What appears to be very innocent on the surface at first and gets worse and worse and worse as we go along. Um, more and more violent and more and more secretive, more and more dark. We're getting into the, remember, hell is a place of darkness. Here's my question. Um, because he's showing us over and over again that humans have a nature. And one of the reasons I'm, I'm I, I may be giving this too much emphasis tonight, but it, um, I hope I'm not. I, I, I give it emphasis because I'm troubled. By, if you look at our culture today, the, the, the common belief today is that we don't have a nature. We can be whatever we want. The typical belief of Americans is we can be whatever we want. That, that is like the motto of our country. We can have sex changes. Um, if I'm five foot, I remember some, Suzanne was reading an article from um, First Things, which is a journal we subscribe to, and she, it was by a, a writer who wrote a book on just this topic. It was describing his interviewing all of these college students with that question, can we be whatever we want? And all the kids said, of course. And he asked such questions like, he said, if you were five foot tall, do you think you could dunk a ball? And they all said, yes, of course you could. <laughs> he said, if you want to be a celloist, can you be a celloist? And I'm sure they all said yes. It's as if there was no sense that each one of us has different gifts, that we have a nature, and it's important for us to learn to recognize that and work with it. Um, because if we don't, and we think we can be whatever we want, what's stopping us? What Dante's showing us again and again in every scene is that we have a nature, and we're watching the effects of somebody who doesn't, um, who doesn't bring it under control, does whatever they do. Remember... He, is, he, is, he was Shakespeare, who's the, the poet par excellence of human free will. Here's my question that I, that I thought to as I was putting my notes together today and finished. How can we escape any of this? 
How can we escape any of this? Now remember, we live in a Protestant America. We've just gone through this with Milton, this act of faith that's so essential to everything we do. We're, we live in a country that believes principally that we're depraved, that we're all suffering from a natural depravity, or from a scientific point of view, we're all atoms floating off in space. We're the product of these forces. Those are the dominant views of our age. So here's my question as we're going down these levels of hell. How can we escape any of this? The lust, the gluttony, the avarice, the wrath, the violence against ourselves or other, the waste of ourselves. At the level of suicide, there are two groups. There are the suicides, like Pierre, and they're the profligates. And the harpies are chasing both of them. The suicides are those who took their own life. The profligates are those who wasted whatever goods they had. So they belong to the same circle. They're all turned into trees and branches and attacked by harpies. How can we escape any of this? The lust, the gluttony, avarice, wrath, violence against ourselves or others. The waste of ourselves, suicide. The waste of our earthly goods that we've been set over as stewards, profligacy. How can we escape any of this without virtue? I'm saying that seriously. Without practicing a virtue. If we don't have something to hold on to, I mean, I, I trust that all of us believe in faith, open charity, or we wouldn't be here. So we can count on that. But with respect to our natural nature, what do we do? What can we do? We know it's impossible to, to attain heaven without the supernatural virtues, faith, hope, and charity. But what do they work with? To what do they give a perfection if, if not these? Moderation, prudence, fortitude, justice. Those are the natural virtues. Justice, fortitude, prudence, moderation, temperance. Yeah. If we don't work on those, if we, if, what do we work on in our world? I mean, what do we turn to? What frames of reference do we have in our world today? Dante's showing us there's a nature, and he's showing us how often it goes wrong. I hope everybody's seen right now that all of that implies there's a way to go right. We won't get there till purgatory, and we'll see it, Right now we're seeing all the disorders of which the human person is capable. On that happy note. <laughs> <laughs> so the violence against God, is that taking God's name in vain? Let's wait. I mean, you're, you're going to be there. You tell me what you do when you read those passages. <laughs> 